ready to go. Okay. So we're in the uh, series that we began on Romans. Um, Last week we saw the context of the letter. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is longing to minister to the people in Rome. He wants some fruit from that group as well because he feels that he is uh, obligated to all the nations uh, around the world, uh, whether they're sophisticated or unsophisticated. Now, we understand that the congregation at Rome was made up mostly of Gentiles, but there were a significant number of Jews there, at least until the Jews were pushed out of Rome, uh, for, as the book of Acts talks about. Um, but it's important to remember these are not modern Jews and Christians. They are Second Temple diaspora Jews who believe in Yeshua and Gentile God-fearing uh, Romans and Greeks who believed in the God of Israel, who were amidst a group of fellow Romans who were polytheistic, pagan. Uh, We ended up in verse 16 where Paul focuses on the gospel as the power of God for salvation to all who believe, and he uses this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Always when he says that, read Gentile, it'll help you to, the non-Jew is who he's referring to. And we're going to look at that phrase because it shows up again in the second chapter, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But mostly this time, we're going to look at the wrath of God and the judgment of God, not a fun doctrine, something that Paul will address throughout the letter And something that I think is missing in the general um, presentation of the gospel. Now, I grew up in a time where the gospel was turn or burn. God's very angry at you because you're a wretch. And you better turn and get with Jesus and then you'll go to heaven. Somewhere in the 60s, the message changed. God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. You're just so adorable. He's got to have you. And so he purchased you with the love of his son. And then he just can't wait to hug you. Right? Uh, Neither of those are really what the gospel is about. So what Paul's doing in this first 11 chapters of Romans. Is he's trying to give us an understanding of the gospel. And he will, in chapter 15, be more explicit about the heart of it. But he's going to be addressing this all through um, Romans. So, we're going to pick it up at verse 16 where we left off. And I'll do verse 16 and 17 and we'll move forward. We're going to get through uh, uh, into the second chapter. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, uh, he says, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, Paul is assuming that the people he is writing to, these God-fearing Gentiles and the Jews that are in Rome, are very familiar with the scriptures. He is going to be constantly referring to the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms uh, 
and even the book of Ecclesiastes all through this. And as he does that, he's not going to give them the whole verse. As a result, many in our current setting think that verses are quoted just for the part that matters. They're quoted for the emphasis with the context being understood by the people who who read it. So if I said it's a Goliath of a problem, you know the story of David and Goliath and that fills in your understanding of it, right? If somebody else had a dog named Goliath but didn't know the story, they would interpret that very differently. So keep that in mind. So what Paul says here is that this gospel reveals the righteousness of God which is from faith to faith. And he quotes Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, that talks about the proud or the imprudent person, this soul that is bent. This, it's bent in a direction against God, towards wickedness, towards evil, but the person is arrogant and proud. The footnote could say American, but it doesn't, okay? Uh, He says, but, and notice he picks it up at that point, but the righteous one shall live by his faith. This idea of living by our faith that will be quoted also in Galatians, Paul will address this several times, is the idea that our faith is the basis of our life, how we live. In other words, it's a faith in truth that as a result of being living in truth by faith of what God has said, and living that way, that's how we'll live. But Paul also means that because of that, we will live. So there's both those aspects uh, being addressed in here. He talks about this being from faith to faith. This word actually is related to truth and the idea of faithfulness and fidelity in that sense. So this faith is grounded in truth. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word in Habakkuk. And the idea is that we live by our faith in truth, both in the way we behave and in that faith we have life. And he talks about this righteousness of God being revealed in that. He's going to talk about that later. But he's really going to focus in now on the wrath and judgment of God. I am uh, I am always interested in uh, at Cal Baptist when I talk to students. I have a course called the implications, the behavioral implications of theology, where I talk about you can say you believe something, but if your behavior doesn't show it, right? If I say I'll meet you at three o'clock and you believe me, you'll be where I'm going to meet you at three o'clock. If you don't believe me or you believe I'm always late, you may come a little later, right? If you don't believe me at all, you're you, you figure I'm not even going to show up, you're not going to go. Many of us say we believe God and we believe the word, but we live as if it wasn't true. We, all, we have the way we live our life, and then we have what we believe. That's not a biblical concept. That's a uh, terrible concept. So what Paul's going to do now is he's going to talk about human nature, and he's going to talk about the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God, and the, and the righteousness by faith that brings about reward to those who are struggling to trust God and obey God. 
So we pick that up in verse 18. Again, this is not something people want to hear when I talk about in that class about the judgment of God. People always tell me, oh, we've been passed from judgment to life. So, it's done. We're not going to, we're going to wake up and we're going to be in the kingdom and that'll be it. Paul says we're all going to give an answer to God for the things done in the body. I'm not happy about that verse. I don't like that verse. I also don't like the verse where Jesus says, you're going to give an account for every idle word. Because I drive the 91 freeway. And I've said a lot of idle words. You know, that's part of the problem. Uh, We're going to stand before God in there. And he's going to talk about this. Now, we're all happy for the the really bad people to stand before God. But we don't want to stand before God. But that standing before God is both a judgment of things done wrong and a reward of things done appropriately and according to truth. So Paul says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is unholiness and unrighteousness. Of men who suppress the truth, remember the faith is in the truth, the God who gives his truth, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They just drown it out. The truth is just ignored by the unrighteousness that's going on. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now what Paul's going to do here is talk about human beings clearly can see the creation and all of its intricate aspects And we can see ourselves and believe that there is a God who's very powerful. And that's clearly revealed in us. Not just to us, but in us. So then he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now what's he talking about? Paul is now going to go to Genesis and he's going to address... The period up to the flood and to some extent things like Sodom and Gomorrah where we begin to get the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the wrath of God being poured out on mankind. And so he says, even though they knew God, it's obvious, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So what happens is people went, yeah, so there's a God, so what? They began to find another way. And they begin, Paul's going to show the descent of what happens in that context. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
Now you've got to see what happens when people reject God as being infinite. They then begin to look at the creation and make God in that image. Like animals. If you think about this, this is idolatry. Idolatry. And the, and the prophets mock this. A guy make, takes a tree, he cuts the wood with half of it. He cooks his food. The other half he carves into an idol. And then he says, you provided me. You, you cooked the food and you made the idol. It's the work of your own hands. And you know darn well there's a God who created all of this. But that's how deceitful sin can be. And so Paul says, this idolatry then is the first step. We're going to substitute God with the creation. Now modern people are a little more sophisticated. They don't worship the images and idols. What they do is they just worship the creation. It's all about the creation. And we can manipulate it, and we can save it, and we can fix it. All of that, right? So now he says it goes beyond that. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice this exchange, moving away from God, who is revealed, to our own concept of God, and now our own, if we're part of the creation, then whatever we feel or whatever we think has got to be truth. And so he says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I know a lot of people want to talk about this and say that the Bible is talking about homosexuality. It's not talking about that. Because when we use the word homosexuality, we're talking about a sexual orientation. That doesn't exist in my opinion. What he's talking about is. Sex gets changed. From what it was intended. God intended sex to be. Between a husband and a wife. For the procreation of children. And the parenting of the children. In that context. Because they're created in the image of God. But when they see themselves as the. Creature itself. And they begin to address this. Now sexuality becomes about sexuality. It becomes about whatever I feel. Whatever I'm attracted to. Whatever I want to do. Whatever feels good. Independent of marriage. Independent of procreation. Independent of parenting. That's what was going on then. There's nothing new under the sun. It's going on now. What bothers me is it's going on among people who are claiming to be God's people. So this is self-indulgence that goes on. Now I want you to notice that we started with idolatry and then we moved to fornication. Sexuality outside of God's plan. 
Both of these are commandment-oriented, related to holiness. These are all related to the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God and serve Him only. Paul says, the body is not made for fornication, but for the Lord. So, Paul starts by saying they reject God, they reject the knowledge of God, they become abominable in terms of being unholy because they don't acknowledge God. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop with the first commandment. It goes on to violate the second commandment. So we pick it up in uh, uh, verse... uh, 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now we're dealing with the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sin aspect causes you to self-protect and harm anyone who will threaten you. And so we see what happens in mankind is we lose holiness in rejecting God and we lose righteousness in being disconnected from God so that we begin to do whatever we can do. Whatever works becomes the norm. Now Paul says... Although they know the ordinance of God, we just talked about love God, love your neighbor. And that those who practice such things, notice the word practice is about intention and direction. They're worthy of death. They not only do it, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice it. So we see the progression From unholiness in the rejection of God and then into evil in the the abuse of our fellow man. Now Paul's going to do something because, you know, if you got to this part of the letter, you could easily go, Hey, yeah, those people are bad. Wait for the judgment's going to get them. Right? We have a tendency to get the we versus them. They're all scum and we're good. Because we ain't looking in the mirror. So Paul's going to address that. In chapter 2. Now he's already said they had no excuse. They knew better. Right? Now he's going to turn to his readers. Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge are practicing the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's wanting us to understand that uh, it's not they versus us, it's all of us. I went through a bit of a time when I had gone from being really running amok in rebellion to God to trying to walk more faithfully to God. And that's when I realized that I went, for a very brief time, I went into a, I'm, I'm making progress here. I'm getting better. <laughs> and you know what that does? Builds arrogance. Bends the soul. And you begin to judge other people. And sin is what you do that I don't like. And my sin, I'm struggling with, I don't want you to know about that. I know about yours, right? So we're going to talk about yours. And Paul's saying, be careful what you... I mean, this is what Jesus said. Don't judge lest you be judged. The purpose of this awareness of a human nature is not for us to go after everybody else, but to look at ourselves. Do you think you're going to escape? Oh yeah, because I said the magic words. Paul's going to argue against that. These are rough verses. So do you suppose this, verse 3, O man, when you pass judgment and you practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Why doesn't God just end this all? He's given us time. He's given us time to get back on the road to repentance. And that's not a road that you do once. You walk down the aisle, do the repent. Well, I repented back in, you know, 1958. Repentance is a daily process. It's a staying on the road of following God. A road that's established in faith with an underpinning of grace and a reminder that we have to watch our step. Not because our steps save us, but because we're seeking after God's glory and not his wrath. So, Paul says this. That the kindness and tolerance and patience of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. It is so hard to get people to realize that we're going to stand before God in a judgment, and therefore every day is about, am I going to live today trusting and obeying God, or am I going to kind of rest from that and go my way? When you do that, you're piling up wrath and judgment to yourself. And I had this thing. Come to Jesus. It all goes away. Starting over. Right? 
so I can horse around and start over. That's, that's not, Paul's going to go back and forth on this all through Romans, that that's not it. What this is, is about realizing God's mercy and grace. God, I'm just, I just did it again. Put me back in your, in your favor. Let me walk in your ways. Not because that will save me, but because you've taken hold of me. And I belong to you. And I'm longing for the righteousness that will be revealed. And I'll drop this body of death. That's really what this is about. He's going to talk about it all through here. So he says, to those who by, verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give them eternal life. Those who by perseverance, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end, the same will be saved. What's he talking about? It's not about earning our salvation. He's going to make it clear. You you can't earn your salvation. Okay? And I've said this before, I'll say it again. If we all became three times as righteous as we are now, we'd still not be in any danger of earning our salvation. Right? That's not what this is about. This is glimpsing towards God that we get it. God, I want your glory. I want that. We're persevering toward it. We're struggling towards it. Sometimes we can run. Sometimes we can walk. Sometimes you can only lean or look in that direction because you're so encumbered by your own stuff. So he says this. To those who seek glory, to those who seek honor, to those seeking immortality, he's going he's to give them eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will get his indignant wrath. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Interesting, he added that phrase. We're going to see next week why he does that. Why is this to the Jew first, both the judgment and the salvation? Well, first of all, judgment begins in the house of God. God will judge his people first. And he will judge us now so that he won't condemn us later. You don't want the blessing now, you want that in eternity. You want the correction now, not then. We don't think that way. We haven't been taught that way. But Paul's very clear about this. He says, there's no partiality with God. Now he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles. We're going to get into that more detail next time. But he, he wants us to understand something. I wish he would have done verse 3 at this point, but he waits and uh, does it in a little different order. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, that's you and me. God didn't give the commandments to us. He gave them to Israel, right? Israel has the covenants, they have the commandments, they have all of that stuff. We had nothing. We were without hope and without God in the world, as Paul says it. Those who sinned without the law will perish without the law. 
And all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, right, will be judged by the law. Because it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now he's going to talk about Gentiles. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, he means by nature, the things of the law, of the Torah, these not having a law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. There is within human nature what Judaism calls a yetzer hara and a yetzer hatov. An urge towards good that comes from us being created in the image of God. And an urge towards evil and selfishness. And that comes from our what Protestants call the sin nature. The little good angel and bad angel sitting on your shoulder. One saying, go ahead and do it. Right? And, and the other one says, don't do that. Yeah, go ahead. Don't, right? You, you all have that kind of struggle inside you. We're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 7. But it's there. And then the conscience says, oh man, you really messed up on that. Seemed like a good idea now. I really wish I hadn't done that. Okay? Most of us, our conscience operates in that understanding that there's good and evil and we need to, there's not talking about holy and unholy, the good and evil part. That's, that's built into us. And Paul says when the Gentiles do that, they address that with their conscience bearing witness to them, uh, either accusing or defending them. But he says this will happen on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. We are not going to be surprised at the condemnation of some of our behavior. We know it was wrong. We know we're self-oriented. We know that we sometimes lie to protect ourselves, sometimes lie to hurt other people. We're always negotiating those things. We know that about ourselves. Some people try to hide it, some people relish it, but it's, it's in us. We're carrying that consciousness of that with our conscience. Now, there are some people who sear their conscience and they don't have that sense. Doesn't, doesn't take it away, the judgment will still be there. But I think a lot of us are not looking forward to certain things that we'll have to explain. But we don't live thinking about that. I think Paul starts this at the early in the letter for a reason. And here's what I think the reason is, and this will help also in parenting. If you start with the, with the strictness and the, and the punitive side, and then you show mercy, the response will be gratitude. If you start with the mercy, they get used to that. And then when you tighten up, you feel like you're being harsh. I don't start with the love of God when I present God to people. 
I start with his righteousness that we can't measure up to. Which means I have a need for an atonement. And a merciful God who provides it. So that I can be grateful and out of gratitude struggle to obey him. Obeying God out of fear means the minute he's not in your mind, the fear is gone. You just can't be God conscious all the time like that. You're much more likely to be God conscious in gratitude than in guilt. So, Paul says that that's going to happen. Now, this initial section of Romans is difficult. Because God tells us he's going to judge our behavior, whether we're Jew or Gentile. And those who practice unholiness, rejection of God, and unrighteousness, evil towards others, are going to be judged with God's indignant wrath. He's letting us know our true condition. And this is part of the gospel. And Paul's going to move from here specifically to talk about this with Jews and Gentiles because the Jews who have the commandments are going to have a little bit, they're going to have an advantage he's going to talk about. But with that advantage comes a tendency to be judgmental of others. And I see that also among Christians who see themselves as better than other people because we're Christians. Instead of, we're the same as them, but we understand God's grace. And we are desperate for his mercy and his forgiveness. And we hope they'll get it too. That's a, that's a different attitude. So he's going to direct his comments to the Jews in Rome. Then he's going to talk to both Jews and Gentiles as sinners. And return to this idea of a righteousness by faith. It's a wonderful concept. Righteousness by faith. Abraham believed God. Paul was Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. And all through this book, as Paul talks about that, he's going to say, that does not get rid of the commandments. Do we reject the Torah? No, we establish the Torah. Should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He's going to, because he knows us. Our tendency is, and you know this, if you were ever a kid, and I still am, when somebody lets you get by with something, it's easier to continue. And yet the mercy should, the kindness should lead us to repentance. It doesn't because we're still struggling with a stubborn heart and a sinful nature. That isn't gone. And Paul will finally say, who's going to deliver me from this wretched body of death? Because you and I are going to struggle with sin. Until we take this body off and put on the new one. And the older you get, the more you wish that day would come quicker. But out of it, I began to realize that this faith. From faith to faith is a struggle. 
It's not about being perfect. It's also not about letting go. It's about getting up every day and saying, I need to follow God. God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. Every day is a struggle of faith. Do I believe in this God? Do I trust this God? Am I going to struggle to obey this God? Knowing that his kindness and his mercy leads me to repentance. And that's an everyday repentance. As I'm getting older, I notice more and more how deceitful sin is. I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good. And then I remember my past. And then I think about my present. And I realize... I'm the same jerk God saved. I know him better. And sometimes the struggle is greater. I tell people I'm a tortured soul and a man of faith. Both of those live in me. And I have to make sure that the old man is put to death. And the new man becomes how I'm going to live today. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Today i got to get through. Paul's going to bring all, all of that's the gospel. It's good news that I can't do it. He did. He will. And God is in us both to do, to will, and to do of his good pleasure. As I struggle in obedience, he brings it about. And I need to remember that. That when I do something right, that was him. And when I do the other stuff, that's the old man in the mirror. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, simplify your gospel, hoping to make it easier for people to accept it. But often we end up accepting something that is less than what you're really telling us. Help us to acknowledge and see the depth of our sin. Not to despair, 